God out of darkness into your marvelous light to declare the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To declare the truth of how we should live as the saints of God and to allow the wicked to know that they're able, O oh God, to make a transition through Jesus Christ. That they can change their life. But Lord, they have to be willing to yield to Christ. That life can be different if they're willing, O oh God, to play by the rules of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For Lord, whenever man leans upon his own understanding, the end result is only death. The end result is fruitfulness, is unfruitfulness. Whenever we want to lean on our own understanding and somehow chart our own course, oh God, it only leads us to destruction. But oh God, when we're willing to follow after thee, we are led into the land of promise. We are led into the land of plenty. We are led into the land where, Lord, there's no wants other than just Jesus Christ and him alone. Because we discover in life that Jesus himself is our bread. That Jesus himself will quench our thirst. That Jesus himself is more than enough. For he will provide all that we have need of when we seek after him and him alone. May you minister to us this morning. May your Holy Spirit speak to us. And may we recognize, O oh God, that you are the God that is at work. And you will continue to do of your own good pleasure in each and every one of our lives and in the life of your church. Speak to us and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, um, some of you know Bill Brown. Some of you don't know Bill Brown. Bill Brown was an elder here for a while at our church and was with us for uh, uh, quite a few years. Uh, Bill is now uh, at SUMA, and he's going through uh, rehab. Bill had a stroke, uh, a serious stroke. And um, his left side was really affected. Uh, so I uh, just want to ask you to be mindful, to pray for Bill and Fanny. Uh, oftentimes, I think sometimes people think when they leave the church here that I'm mad at them. No, I still hold a position that the Lord taught me a long time ago. The Lord bought you, and the Lord has a right to what? Thank you. Uh, the church is the Lord's vineyard, and this is not the only church. <laughs> Hey, the, the Lord may bring you for a season, then he moves you for a season. Uh, the Lord says he's the shepherd. And if he's the shepherd, the sheep should follow who? The shepherd. And he is the great shepherd. And um, we went to visit Bill and had prayer with him and Fanny and allowed them to know that we still love them. And very much care about them. So uh, remember them in your prayer. 
Uh, we're going to plan to go visit Bill during rehab here, but uh, just remember to keep him in prayer, okay? And uh, others who are sick, remember them also. Well, as we end up with this last sermon on Revelations, because we've been in it for some time, and we jumped around in different areas. And uh, I remember Dr. Lugerson said to remember that Revelations opens like a scroll. But he said there's also a way of looking at Revelation is to look at the highlights. Hopefully that's some of what we've done, to look at the highlights. All the way back to Babylon, where Babylon started with Nimrod and so forth, and, and that whole process of where religion, in one sense, started. Religion, not Christianity, but religion. And to understand that you have a church time or a church period that also is going to come to an end. Now, the thing about young folks, they never think life will come what? Yeah. Isn't that something? Young folks never think they're going to grow up. And then when they grow up, they don't want to be grown-ups. It seems like it takes so long to get there. Not looking at the rest of life. The church has had its time period. And in that process of time, it changes. And what we're going to look at is somewhat the changing process of the church, those seven churches, because these are seven churches that, Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ picked out to reveal to us, I believe, what the church would look like in its latter days or towards the end times. He picked these seven churches out of Asia, out of many different churches. And I believe he paints that picture of what takes place in the church somewhat, even in the generation time. As we sometimes listen to older people talk, and I, I hear older people also when I was young and coming up, and what you keep hearing is that church isn't like it used to be. <laughs> and church keeps losing a certain quality. It loses quality through every generation. Because every generation believes they know how to do it better than the past generation. But then what always has to be weighed is this. How much of the honor and the glory and the word of God is lost with each generation? And that's why the Lord said, look back at the ancient ones. Look back at the ancient ones. Look back at the old ones. Well, we don't like to look back, do we? <laughs> we just want to look ahead. But the church changes during each generation. The music changed. What was so good about last Sunday was some of the old gospels that were sung. You know, and, um, boy, the foot patting and the hand, 
some things you don't hear too much anymore. Uh, too often the church anymore, even though we buy hymnals, we very seldom sing out of what? Hymnals. Because we sing all the short praise songs. You know, they're a little bit more jumpy, a little bit more speedy. And like my wife said, all you hear is guitar, guitar, guitar. I'm tired of hearing the guitar. You know? <laughs> but to be able to see the change that takes place, that sweeps through. The church is changing. Apostasy is something that has been with the church from its beginning. It is traced down through the history of the church. Every church has a bit of apostasy in it. What is apostasy? Drifting or sliding away, sliding away from truth. That's all. Replacing truth with something that can sound good, but is not concretely in the Word of God. And we do that with cultural change. We do that with the times in which we're living. And we make changes. Not looking at it as being apostasy. Something totally outside of the word of God. And can't even be found or grounded anywhere in the word. And apostasy is traced back to the very beginning of the church, really. Now... Again, apostasy is just moving away from the truth. And as we enter into the latter days, or we're in the latter days, however you might think of it, what's going to happen is that we're going to move further and further away from the truth, but we're not going to stop being religious. But we will move away from truth. And oftentimes people battle with that, is that, I am religious, but they won't follow truth. Let me give you a little illustration. You can have somebody in the office, you can be counseling with them, and you can say, this is what the Bible says. And they can say, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. But I love the Lord. That's a contradictory. Because the Lord says, if you love me, you'll keep what? Yeah. And the challenge comes in now, do I obey God or do I just be religious? Do I be the Christian who follows the Lord Jesus Christ or do I lean on my religiosity? Religiosity can have many good thoughts, but no concreteness in the word of God. What we know from history is that many have professed Christianity without accepting Christ. Many have said, I'm a Christian. And I think, and I've got to be careful here, I think a lot of people have moved to a position of saying, I know Christ, I've accepted Christ, 
The problem is there's no growth in Christ. And if there's real no growth or depth of love or commitment or loyalty to Christ, you may know of Christ. You know what the church says about you receiving Christ, so you say yes to that with your mouth, but then your heart is far from him. And therefore, because you're saying yes with the mouth, but the heart is far from him, you don't demonstrate any fruits of the Spirit being in your life. You don't demonstrate any obedience, really, to the Word of God. You don't show any hunger for learning the Word of God. You don't have any real desire to form your life in the Scriptures and allow yourself to be that walking testimony that people can look at and read. There goes Jesus Christ. There goes a saint. There goes someone who won't commit adultery. There goes someone who won't commit fornication. There goes somebody that won't be a drunkard. There goes somebody who won't be unholy, unclean. For Paul says, you are our written epistles, read of men. Because why? You have formulated your life in the scriptures. Not in the ideological stuff of man, the ideal stuff of man, and the philosophy of man. But in true Christianity. Theodore Epps, in his book, The Church and End Time, he says the Ephesians was the first century church. And what you saw in that first century church was a young group of men who had fallen in love with Jesus Christ. What you find is young women who have fallen in love with Jesus Christ. They just like many of us who fell in love with our wives or husbands in the very beginning. But the process of that time is, can it grow? Can it grow? So the church of Ephesus is that church that loved the Lord that first century. But during that first century, or those first 300 years, something began to wane. They began to lose it. They begin to lose it. And love can be lost when you neglect it, when you don't pay it attention, when you really don't show that you really desire it. Love can wane. And then he says, Smyrna was the time of the Roman persecution. You went from a deep love, you start losing your love, and the Lord punishes you and takes you into this area of martyrdom and where persecution takes place because there's a wane of this love that the church begins to lose. And God even begins to show the real price of love. When you love somebody, catch this now, when you love somebody, you lose yourself in them. You die to yourself that you might love them. That is not about who then. Not about you. It's about them. And that's what Christ talks about us dying to ourselves. That we die to ourselves that we might magnify Him. That is all about Him. 
And when you love somebody, you die to yourself because you're not fighting for your things. You're fighting, in a sense, for their things. And everything you do is to secure them. Part of my life is wrapped around Elaine that every decision and everything I do is to be able to make her secure and safe and provide those things that she has need of. And when I do that, I really don't have to worry about me because God does that for me that I can do it for her. I'm her covering. Jesus Christ is my covering. Then the church of Pergamos. Corruption starts. Uniting the church with the state. Constantine years. The church has always been in, in a sense, cooperation with the state. I like what Calvin says. That the church has the responsibility of raising up Christians who are able to lead in government. Because he viewed that only the Christian could be fair and could be just. But the church of, the, of God was to formulate those people, to build those people, to gather those people and teach them. So that we wouldn't have to be doing what we're trying to do now. All these little special groups trying to fight the government, change the law, protect this. Because see, if you had godly people in politics, you would not have to be trying to protect something. So Calvin really had it right in that sense. The church has that responsibility of really raising up godly men and women who will serve a nation. Not so much that the state begins to dictate what the church should do or not do. Then, there it are. It is the dark ages or as knowledge or the enlightenment years that all this knowledge begins to flood in. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. There's nothing wrong with being as smart as you can be and going to school and get all the education. But if the knowledge squeezes out God, then like Corinthians says, where's your wise men? Where are your men of knowledge? Where's your philosophers? And God says, all that is really only foolishness. It's only foolishness. Knowledge without Christ and knowledge of the word of God only leads to misimplementation of knowledge. But knowledge used by God under the control of the Holy Spirit with his wisdom is implemented in a way that it is a blessing to men and to a family and to a society. Thyatar went through that 6th century up to about the 15th century, that time of enlightenment. And the church gained and, 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 and came to a point where it was teaching more doctrine. But also in teaching doctrine, something else began to happen. Putting man's knowledge with God's knowledge corrupts it. Then Sardis. 
Epps said, in a sense, this was the Reformation period. It was the Protestant period. But what Martin Luther started in the Reformation has waned and nowhere near what Martin Luther began today. So we see things get started, but over a period of time, from generation to generation, it kind of like loses its focus, it loses its real purpose. They could not maintain its strong spiritual effect upon society. Then the historians and theologians put two together, which they bring to the end times here. Philadelphia and Laodicea. They say these two churches run on the same tracks in a sense. One is Laodicea and one is the Philadelphia and that with these two, the end time church has to pick out which one it wants to be. The church of Philadelphia or the church of Laodicea. And some writers put it in this way. We find the fundamental evangelical church on one side, and then we find the track of liberalism or the liberal church on the other side, but they are coexisting, running at the same time. That you have that fundamental church, that evangelical church, then you have that liberal church. And we see the effects of it. The liberal church, it can ordain homosexuals and lesbians and they say yeah they are creatures of God they are created by God that's all true but God has something against that (laughs) then you have this church over here the evangelical the fundamental church who holds to the word of God and says this is not accepted and that is not accepted and this thing is not accepted and we say we're too strict We're being legalistic. We're taking the word too far. And they both are running at the same time. This lukewarmness, this where you're not totally given over to the word, and this side over here where I can pick and choose which part of the word I really want to obey. He says these two churches is what the church in the latter times will have to make up its mind which one it wants to be. All the churches have or had a degree of false teaching in it. All seven of them. And every church today that exists has some false teaching in it. Now let me explain something. The majority of the church may be on a solid rock. But if it's a church that truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's a church that hungers for and thirsts for the Word of God and want to stand on that Word, believe this, Satan's going to have his little quiet house somewhere in that church. It may not meet until after church. It's going to be like an agitator in the washing machine. (laughs) It's going to be there to agitate. It's going to be there to question. It's going to be there 
to give a false statement about this, this, or that. It may sound good. The question is, is it right? Is it biblical? And sometimes they're not even in leadership, and sometimes they are in leadership. Sometimes they stand in the pulpit. (laughs) And that's what the people have to discern. The issue is how large the degree of falsehood will a church allow? And what effects does the false teaching have on the church? That a thermometer somehow is used to see how high does it rise? Do the people tolerate false teaching and really gather around it and support it and build it? Or do they knock it down? They won't allow it to take a permanent hold. Can't get rid of it. Like the doctor told me about cancer. You're always going to have it. <laughs> it's just not active. How many of you know in your body there are germs in your body that just aren't active, but they're there? I carry the germ of tuberculosis, just not active. I have it, but it's not active. We carry a lot of things in our bodies. But we don't allow those things, in a sense, to overtake us. And the question the church has to ask itself when they look at these seven churches, what will it allow to overtake them? What will you allow to overtake your life? What will you allow? So the issue is not that we don't have it. The issue is the degree of it. Is it 1% of false teaching? Is it 25% of false teaching? Is it 50% of false teaching? Is it 75% of false teaching? How many hypocritical people will we allow in that say, I'm a Christian, but in reality we know they're not really saved because we can see it in their life. And the church is struggling with that. Because the issue is, as my old professor said, if the church needs more money, go get another pocketbook. Well, you've got to get more than a pocketbook. You've got to get the heart because they're in love with Jesus Christ. And the church is battling that. Do I argue against money? Because if I do this, I'm going to lose money. Or do I stay true to Christ? The church is in that struggle today. Jesus said to all seven of these churches, I know your deeds. He knows them because he's in the midst of them. He's in the midst. He says wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's where at? In the midst. And there only might be two or three real Christians in the midst of a church that is loaded with agnosticism that is loaded with people who don't believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Maybe in a church that filled with people who believe that Jesus Christ was a man just like they are. 
You say, well, they ought to go join another church. Well, you know, it's going to get hard to pick a church because as we go closer to the end times, more churches are going to be more religious driven and good deed driven in a sense than word driven and standing on the word. That the church is going to become just like a big country club. We come to see what we're going to do good for the community. And there's nothing wrong doing good for the community. But you do it because of the love of Jesus Christ. And he's prompting it. He says to all seven churches in a sense. I know you're good. I know the good that you're doing. But I also know the wrong. Sada and Philadelphia was really not stated anything that was wrong with them. But the Lord gives them counsel. To strengthen and words of encouragement to keep on doing. In Ephesus, we're not going to try to break it all down, but turn there with me in the book of Ephesus. He says in chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's in the midst of them. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have preserved and have you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary yet I hold this against you you have forsaken your first love remember the heights from which you have fallen repent and do the things you did at first if you repent I will come to you and remove if you do not repent I will come and remove your lampstand From its place. Biggest failure that Ephesus went through was a loss of love or a zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. They lost the sincerity of their love. And what happens with us oftentimes, even in relationships, we're able to say to people, I love you, but there's no sincerity. That love just becomes a word that we throw out here. But there's no sincerity of the heart. There's no real giving of yourself behind that sincerity of what you're saying. You love me. And the issue is that when you say you love me, there should be a sincerity that is willing to act in a manner that really says you love me. And Christ, when he says he loves us, he always just points back to the cross because it's a demonstration of his love for us. In the beginning, they loved the Lord. But when you begin to neglect the things of God, when you begin to laugh at the things of God, when you begin to ignore the things of God, 
and the things of God are not of a real importance to you any longer, there is a neglect and a loss of love. When a man gets off work, if he's not eager to get home, it's a neglect. It's a neglect. When a woman is out shopping and doing for home and know that the husband's at home, there's an eagerness to get where? Back home. When you lose your eagerness to demonstrate your love, you're going to start neglecting what you say you love. And when you start neglecting what you say you love, you're going to begin to move away from what you love. And they begin to neglect. And they had their problems in there. And their problems come to that place that, yes, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, but see, some of them have. Some begin to rejoice and be happy over the wickedness and sin. Don't, don't think sin is not fun and enjoyable. Just remember that scripture says it's only for a season. It's only just for a little time. It's only for a moment. And yet, we will sin to enjoy that just for that moment, not understanding that the consequences may last a lifetime. If you look at the two churches, Ephesus and Laodicea, you see what takes place when there's a neglect. Jesus is pictured in, the, in Laodicea as one on the outside of the church doing what? Knocking to get in. When you neglect things, they begin to fall, they begin to get weakened, and what you find yourself thinking about those things is simply this. Carelessness. It don't matter. It's not important. When you deem something you love or once loved no longer important, it's because you have neglected it. When you're not concerned about something any longer, it's because now you have neglected it so long, it no longer matters. And just like Jesus, if you neglect him in your personal life, pretty soon he's not in the heart per se. He may be in the mind, but he's standing outside trying to get your attention. Because a knock on the door is nothing but getting your attention to allow somebody to recognize there's somebody's at your door. And that's all a knock is. It's alerting you to something. And it says they lost their first love. How many of you are neglecting your first love? How many of you are neglecting the things of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of you put Jesus Christ second rather than first? And in our minds, and this is the deceptiveness of the mind and the heart, 
The heart can say, I love him, but I'm not really serving him. And that's why the Lord says, each man must search his own heart. Because, see, you justify why you're not at Bible study. You justify why you're not in prayer meeting. You will justify why you're not at this and why you're not at that. And, and it all sounds good and is reasonable. But the question I would ask you is this. Are you neglecting the Lord? Because as you neglect Him, you're also doing this, moving away from Him. You say, well, I don't like Bible study, or I don't like Sunday school, or I don't like this, or I don't... God didn't ask you to like it. He said to grow in the grace and knowledge of me. And how are you doing that when you're not participating? Then he moves on to that whole area. Like I said, we're not going to be able to hit it all. Smyrna. He says, a reminder. He reminds them of something. You're rich. You're rich. When the church will stand on Jesus Christ and his word, the promise is is that God will take care of his church. So the church financially can be poor, yes. The church can can not have as much money as another church down the street or, or, or somewhere else or don't have the type. But if God wants something to be done, it will be done. President Budna began to speak to us, and I remember, and I caught that statement. He said, always remember this. If the vision is yours, money may not follow. But if the vision is of God, and the dream is of God, and it is God's program, God will be responsible for providing the funds that are needed to accomplish it. God will provide it. Because it's his church. It's his vision. It's his desire of what he wants done. And God will provide it. And yet he understood their affliction and their poverty. Understanding this historically. Those who have always been poor and in poverty have always been the afflicted ones in a culture or a society. And what Jesus says to them is very simple, this. You're rich. And sometimes as a church, we have to be reminded, we're rich. We're rich. We're rich in Jesus Christ. And whatever God wants to do through our church, He will do it. It's not about what we have in the bank. It's not about what we have saved. It's a matter of asking one question. Is this what God wants us to do? And then be ready to do it with all your heart and all your might. And allow God to provide. That doesn't mean you don't struggle. Because the struggle puts you more on your knees. But to remind yourself, you're rich. You're rich. You have something. And oftentimes we have to be reminded. So in Revelation 2.9 he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You're rich. 
You're not poor. You're in my hands. You're in my care. I'm responsible for you. The church, just like a person, has to be reminded in this fashion. No work, no eat. (laughs) No work, no growth. No work, no this. But if you work, and you go to work every day, that doesn't mean on Friday you're going to be a millionaire because you worked that week. But that's what some of us expect. If I go to work one week, I got it made. If I serve the Lord one week, I got it made. No, it's a continuation of working, 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 and then teaching yourself to put a little up, a little up, a little up, a little up. And the Lord says the little will become much. And he puts it in this framework. He that is faithful in the little, he that is faithful in the tough times, he that is faithful when he's struggling, the Lord says, I'll give you much. He didn't say you earned it. He says, I'll just give it to you. Based on this, your faithfulness. Can I share this little principle with you? Because God has taught this to me. Now, I'm going to be a little bit transparent here. Don't throw it back at me. God has taught me something about church life and myself. When I sin, either in thought or action or whatever, I see a dip in this church. So part of my prayer has become, Lord, because of my sin, do not hurt your church. But then the Lord reminds me of David. When David sinned as king, who suffered? Israel. Even to the point that thousands of people lost their lives because of who sinned. And it brings the pastor to a more area of responsibility than just himself. And sometimes even with himself, he's saying, I don't want this responsibility. But it's that responsibility that helps change the individual. Did you hear Christ saying on the cross, I don't want this responsibility? Yet you are called for that. So even in my failures, even in my wrongness of life, even in my wrong thoughts of life and wrong action of life, I want to repent real quickly and say, Lord, don't blame the church. Don't blame the church. And and the whole thing is that You have to be reminded of who you are and who you belong to. And the church of Sardis had to be reminded of who they are and who they belong to. Every Christian that is truly saved, though they have not a nickel in the bank, 
is rich. Because David said, I've never seen the righteous, what? Forsaken nor a seed doing what? Begging for bread because you have one who will provide for you if you will be faithful unto him. Then they had to deal with people who were pretenders in the church. And those pretenders were of the synagogue of Satan. He says, I know the slanders of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And in every church, you got people who are saying they are Christians, but in reality, they are the children of Satan. They're there pretending to be like Christians. They wear the robe that looks like They know how to look like it. And that's why the Lord says, yes, you judge from the outer, but I look at the heart. Because you can dress yourself all up in this Christian robe and Christian jargon, and you can sing and you can pray and you can have the right words come out. But are you really saved? And they had to deal with those pretenders. For they were of the synagogue of Satan. And the warning for them or the encouragement was, you will suffer and every Christian, as long as we're in this life, will have some suffering. Whether it comes to persecution or whatever, you're going to suffer some for doing what is right. But he encourages them, be faithful unto death. Don't worry about the one who can kill the body and can't do anything else with the soul. But fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Yes, one can kill the body. That's all they can do. And that's why he says, the second death you're not afraid of. The second death has nothing to do with you. The first death may be caused by man, but the second death is caused by him. And he says, don't fear the one that can maybe cause the first death, but fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell, the second death. Pergamos, the center of idol worship, the seat of Satan. Some of the things worship were medicine and science and nature. We worship that today, don't we? We think we get the right medicine, we'll be all right. But we forget that oftentimes medicine is only a helping hand that helps God to cure us in a sense. Because ultimately, we should be looking to who to heal us. Knowing that all medicine comes through the knowledge of who? Of God. That it might serve humanity. Science didn't discover it. It was already here, in a sense. They didn't make it up. They didn't create it. It was here. And most of the time, they found it by mistake. (laughs) They found it by accident. But it's already here. And for the Christian, yes, we need the medication. But look at it this way also. You're more dependent upon God touching you than you are the medicine. Then science. Science 
wants to prove God wrong or science this or science that. And many scientists have come to a point to recognize God is right. God is right. And some of these things could not exist without somebody creating them. And then the other issue is nature. And we still have those who worship nature and nature this and nature that. And we have nature month or nature week. We're all caught up with nature. But yet they cannot define nature or who nature is. We have it in today's modern thing also. In this issue of fads and things that we so desire. We have those things that we worship. Do you worship your home? You worship your car? You worship your job? You worship your title? All those things can, can become idols. And we need to recognize it. Some of the things worship, medicine, science, nature, Satan worship, began in Babylon under Nimrod, and it has continued throughout the ages. Throughout the ages. But in 2.13... He says to them in this manner here when we get into the church of Pergamon. He says, I know where you live. Both of them had to deal with Satan and the hypocrites. Understand something. God knows what you have to deal with. God knows what you have to deal with in your church. God knows what you have to deal with in your home. God knows what you have to deal with on your job. God knows what you have to deal with in your community. God knows. But I want you to look at it from another picture. picture. God planted you where you are to be a light for him. On your job, in your family, in your community. And counted a blessing that God has placed you there. To be a light. To be his mouthpiece. To be his witness. Count it a blessing that you're able to be there. Thyatara, the word was willing set aside. It was willingly set aside. Um, Did I miss Pergamon? Go back one. Pergamus, yeah. The area of idol worship, uh, the whole issue is they did not deny their faith. They held on to their faith. One of the main teachings in all religions today is that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is a created being. Only in Christianity is Jesus Christ deity, is Jesus Christ God. Thyatar, the word willingly set aside for a Jezebel who called herself a prophetess. We have a lot of prophetess today. We have a lot of prophets today. We have a lot of apostles today. How do we test them? And one way of testing is to see this. What they say does it come to pass? (laughs) What they say, does it come to pass? We get thrilled over what they say, but we don't see if it comes to pass. 
We get all excited that somebody prophesy over us, but does it come to pass? And somewhere you need to put these things to test. The issue of being an apostle, and don't explain what you mean by apostle, there is an apostle in the sense that I have the spirit of an apostle, one who sent or one who is going with the message of God, and then there's that sense, I am one of the apostles, like the real apostles. No, we don't have that. And today we got all these things that somehow, and I think is causing a problem in the church, that the title is not important. You can call me dirty old pastor, that's all right. The question is, am I teaching the word of God? See, what's important is this, is that I know who I am more so than you know who I am. That I know that I've been called of God. That I know that I've been called to shepherd. I know that I've been called to preach the word of God. I know who I am because of God calling and speaking to me. Now, whatever you call me, it really don't matter. (laughs) But we've gotten into this where pastor wasn't good enough. We got to have reverend. Reverend's not good enough. Now we had to have doc. Doc wasn't good enough. Now we got to have prophet. That wasn't good enough. Now we got to have bishop or apostle. We're confusing ourselves. The greatest title you'll ever had, and you've heard me say it before, the greatest title you'll ever have is servant. That you can confess that you are the servant of the Most High God and that people are able to see you perform your service. That is the greatest title above all else. That's why Paul says, I'm a bond servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's greater than even his title, apostle. And he demonstrates his service then in his ministry. In Thyatira, this Jezebel was one who would teach falsehood. I would challenge you on something. Many of the cults and many of the false teaching have come from women. Check it out historically. And, and there is a reason that God says, and I don't think God has changed it, that man is first in the order of taking care of his creation and of his home and of his kingdom and of his church. That man is first. Now, we don't like that because we want to say, well, we're all the same. Yes, we all are the same at the cross. There's no greatness at the cross but Jesus Christ. But there are women and there are men, and we both have a role to play in our families, in our society, and in our churches. And they cannot become confused. 
They have to stay according to what the scripture says. And he says about this Jezebel, he says in that uh, verse 20 and 21, he said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerated the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misled my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food and sacrifice to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who committed adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now, there were those who had took up and started following her, doing, listening. And they purposely set the word of God to the side. How many of you purposely set the word of God to the side? You deliberately do it. Just because you don't want to take heed to it and you don't want to follow it. You purposely set it to the side. He says, I will strike her children dead then all the church will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each. And he says in that verse 9, you are doing more than you did at first in that verse 19 with this church. That's the encouragement. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. How many of you are praying, Lord, let my latter years be more profitable than my earlier years? How, how are you praying? Lord, let my latter years shine more for you than my earlier years. Why? I have more knowledge. I have more understanding of you. I've walked longer with you. I've seen the demonstrations of your power down through my life that, Lord, I can be an instrument of dynamite in this older age because of the experience and the wealth and knowledge I have of you. And he says, boy, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Are we doing more than what we did at first? Sardis. See if I get these last two in the next five, six minutes, we can go into communion. He calls it the sleeping church. And he says to Tardis, wake up. A lot of churches fall asleep. Or if I may use it this way, a lot of churches become weary and well-doing. And they begin to just stop. It's not an issue of stopping. It's an issue sometime of evaluating and seeing which direction now do we go. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And it's important to do something. Can't do everything, but we can do something. This church had went to sleep and just, I'm done. I'm done in a sense. And Jesus says, in 3-2, he says, wake up! 
Wake up! See, the church, though it was alive, it was dead. It was like that person, before he became to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they were dead in their sins and their trespasses, but when they were quickened by the Lord Jesus Christ, they became alive. But even while they were dead, they were living. The church can be living, but it is useless or dead. The counsel of the Lord is be watchful. That's the word used in King James. Be watchful. And he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. See, what he's saying, it's all not dead. And sometimes the church will go through that season where it may look like it's dead. And you can look at your flowers sometime at a certain time of the year. And it begins to look like they're dying and they're dead. And boy... You can put some of that food around them. You can do it and they'll spark back up. And there are those flowers that, yeah, they look like they're dead, but down in the ground they're still alive. And guess what? Next summer they do what? They come right back up. Something can look like it's dead, but it's not dead. And the Lord says to them, strengthen those. Strengthen. Give strength to them. And he gives two ways in which he wants to see strength given to the church. And all churches go through these times and these periods, the ups and the downs and so forth, and the sleepiness and the awakeness. He says, what needs to be done is to remember what you have received. In other words, you can chew on something over and over and over again. The cow, they said, kind of like chew on his cud. It brings it back up and chews over it again. When the last time you brought back up a scripture and chewed over it again? Oh, I read through the Bible one time. That's enough. But do you keep going back to be refreshed? Do you keep going back to renew your mind? Do you keep going back to feel your hunger and thirst? Do you keep going back to see what else God is going to say to you? And he says, remind yourself of what you have heard and what you have learned. Remind yourself. How many of you practice reminding yourself by saying something that the Word of God says? He says, they need to remind themselves of that which they have heard. Now he brings in the part by James. Just don't be hearers of the Word. But begin to what? Be doers and practice the word. See, you can talk about the word all day long and do absolutely nothing. You can quote all kind of verses. But in your life, there's no activity of practicing those verses. And he says, obey it and repent over the areas where you have not and begin to practice those things. Those are the two things. And when you put those two things to work in your life, you awaken and you alert yourself to the responsibility that you have as a Christian and a servant of the Most High God. Church of Philadelphia, he simply says, boy, the key part I think there is the keys. Is that though they had pretenders there, 
again, people faking to be. And that, that happens in all the churches, in a sense. But it comes to that place that he says he has the keys. Those are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds, in verse 7, who, in chapter 3, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. It is God who opens the doors for the church or closes the doors for the church. It is God that makes this possible or makes it impossible. It is God that says step in or step out. It is God that says come out of the boat. It is it's God who says launch your nets over. It is God. It's not about what you've done. Peter said we toiled all night. Jesus said cast your nets over. And what happens? Get the biggest catch. Obedience. Peter, come out of the boat. Oh no, Lord, that's why. Ain't nobody ever walked on water. Come out of the boat. Do it. Hey. The people saw when he called Lazarus out of the grave. When God opens a door, our responsibility is not so much stare at it, peep through it, see if I can walk in it. Do it! Make the first step. Get on the other side of the threshold. Get out there where God wants you to be and let God take care and be responsible for you. But you step into it. And sometimes God won't give you further direction until you take the step. (laughs) Until you take the step. And then the Laodicea church. The Philadelphia church, we have to make our minds that we're willing to take the next step and trust God. And we're willing to trust God to open the doors for us. That's one of the things that we're seeing in church life today, where people trust God. The Laodicean church becomes just the opposite. Laodicea means the voice of the people. Laodicea itself means the voice of the people. And what the church becomes is this. I'd rather hear the voice of man and, the, and all the charms and chromatic and the charismatic voice of men and the eloquence of men rather than hear the voice of God. You have to choose whose voice you want to hear. A lot of us go hear good speakers and they're fabulous speakers. They're dynamic speakers. The question is, is it the voice of God that's speaking? Is it the word of God that's being declared? And the Laodicea simply means the voice of the people. And they rather hear the voice of man than the voice of God. They're more concerned with what man says rather than what the word of God says. And the church accepts formality more than truth. Boy, we can be right on time and we can have everything set up just right and we can do everything just right and we can come in with all of our robes and walk down and we can have this and we can have that. We have all this formality but no truth. And the teaching does not fit in our culture or our social life today. Laodicea Church. And the Lord says, boy, I wish you were either hot or cold and you're trying to play what? Middle ground. 
And how many churches today are trying to play middle ground? You can't play football just on the 50-yard line. <laughs> and that's where we are as churches. We're trying, we want to be in the game, but we only want to play on the 50-yard line. Okay? We don't want to win, nor do we want to lose. We want to be right on the 50-yard line okay? and play the game. People of the church are neither cold or hot. And they say that we're rich. We look good. Our doors are open. And they say they have need of nothing. It is a better church that has nothing. But know they have a great need of Jesus Christ. And even if you have a million dollars, your attitude is, Lord, I need you to go before me that I don't step out the wrong way. I don't do the wrong thing just because I'm capable of doing it financially. But that, Lord, you order my steps. You lead us. In all seven churches, there's part of us in those churches. So we have a little bit of all seven church in this church even. And I believe every church that exist today have a little bit that they're struggling with of these seven churches. And God picked these seven churches to show us what we might be like at the end and the things we're going to have to struggle with. Are we neglecting our love for Christ? Are we more fearful of being persecuted than we are standing up for the truth? Where are we as a church? Each one of you have to answer that. Why? Because you make up the church. You make it up. You are the church. We're no stronger than the weakest person in this church. We're no stronger than what you truly believe. But if you believe, God is more than able to use us in greatness for his glory. Father,